Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and an assortment of astral projections in diverse vehicles. In her new radio poem for Culture File, Eve B. Golden remembers scratch cards as the route into the great unknown, while for Jennifer Walsh it's data from a distant planet that opens up the universe. Ornya Gallagher has been looking to the skies and seeing the march of capitalism, but we begin this time with the sonic spaceship that is Dub Reggae. Credited with helping dub into the digital age, Mad Professor, or Neil Fraser as he's known to the tax office, used his engineering skills to build one of London's most prolific reggae studios and labels, Ariwa. With Fraser at the controls, the label released dozens of albums and collaborations in a myriad of reggae styles, from its Peckham bass. On top of which, a Nixer Mad Professor took on, remixing Massive Attack's protection in a dub style. Style, produced the biggest selling dub album ever made, introducing millions to the spacey, reverb fueled style. Mad Professor gave Culture Files Louis Scully a light speed tour of his and Reggae's family tree. My name is Neil Fraser, dub creator, electronic inventor, born in the Caribbean, born under the sun. Sometimes they call me Mad Professor. I love to dub it crazy while rocking to the lover's rock. And when we rock to the lover's rock, we say, I am in shock, so lift up your frock and let's move to the lover's rock. I was born in Georgetown, Guyana, on the north side of South America. I'm here at Ariwa Studios, and this is where I work. I said to my mom, I want to find a man in the radio, and she kept saying there's no man. So I opened the radio, and that started a curiosity about electronics and how it worked, you know? And the kids around me, they were fascinated about my love for electronics. So when they saw all the wires and when I built my first radio, they said, ah, mad professor, mad professor. Well, reggae, you know, created in Jamaica from the in Jamaica independence around 62. Gather together, be brothers and sisters, we're independent. First it started as ska. Then it moved from ska into rocksteady. Then after rocksteady, it was reggae, and for years it was reggae. We then had MC reggae, like toasting, what we call toasting. And that started from like people DJing in the dance. Instead of just playing records, they would take the microphone and, Wow, baby, give it up. Just about the same time you had dub reggae in the early 70s. Next name that came up, which was Roots Reggae. 
now by the mid 70s you had dub and you had roots then soon after that you had um early dancehall reggae <laughs> We no better respect the elder entertainer. We no nurse on a pet. We no dribbler on a soda. We no powder. All of the foundation said respect for. So by the early eighties, you had reggae, roots reggae, dance, all reggae. No itty tighty, flitty flighty, pussy like a damn face a rule. I been pon even for them best friend and them no old. Them original kind of. Lovers Rock, which was more a British kind of invention. So here we started to make music a little bit more melodious and more sweet, where you could hold on to your girl and the music just inspired you to like um, be more loving. And um, romantic. So we end up with like eight to ten different types of reggae, and some types don't like the another type, and you know, well, that's life. Dub music, it was developed as like a spin-off from reggae. It moved from instrumental music to experimental music where the engineer would add effects to a track and take out various instruments from the multi-track to create a different sonic landscape. So this is good music for driving with, good music to meditate to, good music for doing every and anything to. It's a, it's a special music. Were you ever tempted to get on the mic a little bit more and do some toasting? Mm. No. I tried it a couple of times. I heard my voice and I said... What's that? No man. Some people are supposed to be this side of the desk and some people the other side of the desk. So that's fine. Mad Professor there on the 8 to 10 Faces of Reggae. Louis Scully was the reporter. Now, composer and artist Jennifer Walsh is a super fan of long standing when it comes to space travel. She hasn't been up there yet, or even as Richard Branson and his spaceship were recently, quite close to up there. But that doesn't stop her from understanding space and human limitations, perhaps more clearly than Branson or Bezos or Musk, as we hear now in this episode of Jennifer Walsh's Things Know Things. Last July, the Perseverance rover departed Earth for Mars. I watched the launch live, because who doesn't love a good launch? 
the excitement of the engineers, the nerves, the carefully calibrated countdowns. And that night, when Perseverance was out of sight, but safely on its way to Mars, I made an entry in my calendar for mid-February. The date wasn't set yet, but Perseverance was expected to land sometime around then. All through last autumn's second wave, the rise of the different variants and the seemingly endless lockdowns that the new year brought, I thought about Perseverance moving through space at incredible speed towards Mars. And on February 18th, I tuned in for the landing. The last part of the journey, the entry and sharp descent directly before the rover lands, is considered the most dangerous part of the flight. NASA calls it the seven minutes of terror. This is where things can go horribly wrong and indeed have gone horribly wrong for previous missions. The chief problem during the descent is the time delay. It takes communications from Mars roughly 11 minutes to reach Earth, so there is no possibility of correction if something goes wrong. Perseverance, like all previous rovers, had to land autonomously and it had to identify a suitable landing site as it plummeted towards Mars at incredible speed. Everyone who listened to the live commentary of those seven minutes knew that it was not in fact live. The rover had either already landed or been destroyed. And what joy, what joy to hear that Perseverance had made it down safely, even after the fact. I cheered and even shed a few tears, watching alongside millions of other people across the planet. Last week, I tuned in once more to witness the first flight by Ingenuity, the tiny helicopter which stowed away on Perseverance. This would be the first ever flight by a human-built machine on another planet. I watched the engineers wait for the data from Ingenuity to download. There was no live video, no live sound, only what could be inferred from the data. And suddenly I found myself cheering, along with the engineers and other people watching the stream, because there was a graph on the screen of the altimeter readings, and that meant that ingenuity had succeeded. A few minutes later there was an image, and then a few seconds of glitchy video, files so new that they were untitled. But that feeling of cheering at a graph has stayed with me since then. As humans attempt to move farther out across the universe, those of us here on Earth will lag further and further behind in time. We'll cheer at download confirmations and graphs. We'll cheer at packets of raw data. And the machines we programmed will be ahead of us, farther away than we've ever been, experiencing it all live. Jennifer Walsh there, staring into deep space. And for all the previous episodes of her Things Know Things series for Culture File, have a look at the Culture File page on SoundCloud. 
Now, our current Billionaire Boys Club dong-shaped rocket race has a few messages for humanity. From it, we learn that clearly nobody dares tell Bezos that his anatomically correct vehicle is a little bit on the nose, and that, in the absence of a global tax regime, Jeff and his mates plan to pretty literally burn all the money. But on top of these sad learnings, our little space spurt also signals that out there is up for grabs. Crabs. Compensatory star tourism is just the tip of the rocket, as culture files Anya Gallagher discovered one starry night on the edge of the island. Warning, this report contains trig. What you're hearing right now is called sun sonification, or in plain speak, the sound of the sun. Now, This gentle, low-frequency hum isn't necessarily what Icarus would have been listening to in his final moments, but what it is is a scientist's translation of the sun's movement waves, loops and eruptions into sound. Space tends to have an eerie sound to it. Actually, we put these eerie soundtracks to it. Extraterrestrial beings, dark matter, nebulas, black holes. It's a whole mysterious language, really. Some weeks ago, at the edge of the land on the Bear Peninsula in Cork, while brushing my teeth, I glanced up to the dark sky and saw a very strange thing. Things. There were loads of them. Thirty or forty, all tied together with some kind of invisible string. Each one like a bright star. Or a satellite? but too bright to be a satellite. All travelling along some path together in a line, but not as uniform as I would have liked. They looked like they didn't belong. They moved fast across the sky, and I watched them for around ten minutes until they were out of sight. The sound? Silence. A nervous silence. I let this uncomfortable feeling manifest silly thoughts for a while, And then I went to sleep, knowing that, like all things, there would be a reasonable explanation for the sight. And of course, a quick Google the following day of string of moving stars led me directly to the answer. Starlink satellites. A recent launch of new satellites by SpaceX, aka Elon Musk. No surprise there, really. But it was still news to me and seemed to be news of some magnitude. Why is no one talking about these new weird things in the sky? Yes, I'm Dr Jeremy Triglone-Reed. I'm an assistant professor at the Universidad de Atacama. So I spoke to an astronomer for further clarification. In northern Chile. I did my PhD in mainly exoplanets at the University of Kiel in Staffordshire in the UK. And I kind of got into the Starlink stuff about just over a year ago, when basically, you know, the bright lights in the sky and it was affecting um, general telescopes' observations. One of the most prolific ones is from um, DCAM, where they got, like, mosaic images and there's, like, 18 Starlink streaks going straight across the images. So, yeah. (laughs) And so the issue is, is this a threat? How much of a threat is it? And uh, what mitigations can be done to both by us, the astronomers, and also the actual satellite companies themselves. (laughs) 
Starlink is basically it's a subsidiary of SpaceX, and basically the idea is to produce low-Earth orbit satellites that will provide um, high-speed broadband internet to everyone on any every part of the planet. So basically, you could be in South America, rural America, or parts of Africa. You have a ground station, and you can basically end up having you know four or five G speeds internet, you know, hundred megabytes. The issue is because they're um, low-Earth orbit. Their orbital height from the surface of the Earth is roughly 300 to 1,200 kilometres. Standard GPS satellites are normally about 20,000 kilometres. And as luminosity is an inverse square law, you half the range, you increase the brightness by four. So hence, these satellites are so much more brighter than standard satellites we already have in orbit. Jeremy's insight made me think of space in a different way. I imagined it now as a place, like a club. With navigational passages operational technological systems, maps, not of stars but of paths, which vehicles and humans travel. I'd never really considered it like this. This vast expanse of the unknown, free from all these rules, seemed now to me to be in some kind of danger. Whose right is it to conquer all that space above us? We have already unduly claimed every inch of land and sea, and now space? It seems... Weird. Wrong. Who's even licensing this zone? Uh, basically, it's the um, FCC. How it all works under the space treaties is each government that signed up to it is responsible for the companies and themselves. Because we never had this issue before, it was all approved because it normally goes for, they look at the radio frequencies and basically making sure that all the satellites are in the right space to make sure there's no interference of radio astronomy and also radio communications. We've never had this issue before, so it's never been looked at. Cosmic travel isn't a new concept to our generations, but in the grand scheme of things, of time, it is very fresh. Maybe it's just the Starlink's look. It's almost swanky or something. But I fear this recent venture is overstepping a boundary. Yes, international high-speed internet is a reputable aim for our society, and SpaceX have been very attentive to astronomers' concerns so far, with various attempts made to reduce brightness. But outer space seems very quickly, and without much notice, to have gone from something we observe and explore to something we put machines in, something we use. I'm collecting the data, analysing the data, and then providing the results to the astronomical community. So the you know computer modelers, the simulations, and also providing information to SpaceX, so they can determine if the new mitigation designs are actually working, and if they are working, how efficient are they working? What we wanted to do is get them to at least magnitude seven or fainter. When we say uh, magnitude seven, because the brightness of the satellite is an inverse square law, when it's directly above you, the range to you in the satellite is its orbital height. But as it comes lower in the horizon, the range increases. Bit of trigonometry there. And as it gets low on the horizon, it'll get fainter and fainter. So what we're saying is we want it at magnitude 7 when it's above your head. So when it's low on the horizon, it's then magnitude 8, magnitude 9. SpaceX does seem to be going the right way. Um, there are no regulations at the moment, and we've got other companies launching their satellites. So we're hoping that the other companies, Amazon, OneWeb, will follow in the footsteps of Starlink in respect that saying they're seeing the issues. Hopefully, they'll come up with their own mitigation designs.
there are no regulations at the moment in this space in which companies such as OneWeb and Amazon are preparing to launch. I'm less optimistic than Jeremy about their discernment. As usual, it's not the unknown, but the familiar aliens that present the greatest danger. Gallagher there on the final frontier of capitalism. For now, as we were preparing her latest piece for Culture File, I mentioned to Eve B. Golden that the new radio poem, The Silver River, which meditates upon, among other things, the awesome magnetism of scratch cards, brought to my mind my mother's sister in Galway, with whom I share a special devotion to scratch cards and their cosmic promise. So Eve suggested we dedicate the piece to her, along with Eve's own grandmother Sylvia. So for Annette O'Connor in Galway City and Sylvia Brooks in Rochester, New York. This is Eve B. Golden with The Silver River. The Silver River. My closest friend and I take a trip up north to a place called Kern River Valley once a year. It's quaint, majestic, and the town center is always charged with both over-familiarity and disorienting foreignness. Each year, I indulge in this place like an extended psychedelic rabbit hole tumble. Part of why I feel so distractingly out of place here is because the space feels propped up by beams, like an abandoned film set. Chipped paint, tumbleweeds, but just outside of it, a luscious, Icy river lined with metallic sediments and rocks large enough to sleep upon. Every time I come here, I lean into the moment with a liquor store scratch-off ticket. This feels most apt since it pulls me into the memory of my grandmother's ashtrays and the lining of her church bag. The bag in question, littered with silver acrylic paint flakes, nickels and quarters, Ripped cardboard paper reads, 
bonus number, mysterious symbols like polychrome runes. She loved to win, but rarely did. Not that that would keep her from chasing the dream. Out of thrill, habit, poverty. When I'm away, I buy two at a time. When I get to the town center, I kid you not, I've won nearly every time I've been. Hand to God. First, $20. Then, 10 Then another 10 Then 50 Then 30 I'm not a gambling girl, but when I step away from the comfort of the saturated city, my routines, and dive into the unknown of a place like Kern River Valley, it's like the gates are open. The point isn't to win. The point is a feeling of belonging, to shake the all-too-familiar vibe that I'm the black sheep in a place. A sting I've known since childhood. I had a chance to be much more than a strange, gawky child once. My grandmother handed me a scratch-off and a quarter one summer afternoon and asked, through the smoke of her Virginia Slim cigarette, Is this the winner? And it was. I made it so. A hundred dollars on a three-dollar ticket. And my reward. Two packs of rainbow Skittles. Uts potato chips. And two dollars for later. But most importantly, was the recognition that I was a good luck. I was deeply special. I was a contributing member of the family, much more than a black sheep. I was the winner. I'm a sentimental person and am very in tune with the rhyme scheme of the universe. I feel like the river lined in pocket change the open gates of this hidden place up north, and my grandmother have a message for me. I feel instructed to scratch away at the mysterious veil of the present in order to bring chance and magic into focus, like a child with a magnifying glass, or the halo spreading around the face of a woman who loves to win, but rarely does. The water is so cold when you dip your feet into Kern. And when you resist the impulse to run back to the warm, familiar banks, bestriding it 
You're gifted handsomely as flakes of silver and gold hover around your ankles and toes. That's the Silver River. That was The Silver River by Eve B. Golden, and you can find the other poems by Eve in our summer series via the Culture File page on the Lyrics site or wherever you get your radio poems. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more Star Trekkin' next Saturday at 6.30pm. Till then, nanu nanu.